welcome to Filmy Girls Idolcast. Hit it! song today was a live version of Seaside Bound, the Tigers' second single, recorded August 22, 1967, at Sun K Hall in Tokyo. There's some really fun choreography that goes with this song. During the instrumental breaks, the front line kind of jumps right, then left, then walks back, then forward. It is, and I cannot emphasize this enough, super adorable. I picked this song because I love how loud and clear the fan chants come across. The power of idol fans captured on vinyl, spreading their love of the Tigers still so pure and good after more than 50 years. Go Bound! Because yes, for this episode and the two following, we are deep diving into the first and still one of my all-time favorite idol groups, the Tigers. I discussed them a bit briefly in episode two, but because there is so much to dig into and so little information available in English, I couldn't resist returning to them. And this is going to be a three-parter, so buckle up for a wild ride. I think it's worth looking back at the Tigers because, number one, they set the mold for many of the groups to follow, not just musically, but with their fashion and the way their real-life friendship was a part of the brand image. I mean, groups produced by the late Johnny Kitagawa could be spotted in Tigers-influenced fashions well into the 2000s. And then two, in their short time together, the Tigers lived out a story we'll see repeated time and again in idol group history. Young men thrust into the spotlight unprepared for the strain of celebrity, with no control over their lives or their art, and the small personality conflicts that grew out of control living in close quarters, the artistic tension between the main creative force and the main commercial one that gave them such a spark was also in the end what caused the band to flame out. Before I begin, because 
I am a librarian, I want to say that my main sources for this episode were a series of interviews published with members of the Tigers in Japanese magazine Rockjet for their big reunion concert in 2013, as well as a Tigers biography, also published in Japanese in 2013, and a series of reprinted interviews and other articles yeah, in Japanese from Japanese music magazine Screen, um, collected from the years 1965 to 1970. And I also watched um, a few videos that are available on YouTube, such as Some Kind Soul who uploaded Sawada Kenji's interview with Kurugyonagi Tetsuko, and there's also some interviews with Morimoto Taro from the early 80s when there was a brief sort of revival in um, group sounds. And there is just little to nothing available in English on popular Japanese music of this era or really of any era, which is a damn shame. So here is my contribution to Closing the Gap. Allow me to set the stage for you. The five original members of the Tigers were all part of the post-World War II baby boom in Japan. Four of them are from Kyoto, the smallish provincial historic city located a few hundred miles south and inland of Tokyo, which is the cultural and political capital of Japan. The fifth original tiger grew up in Osaka, which is the closest big city to Kyoto. And Osaka is known for being an outspoken, straight-talking kind of place, famous for comedy and for a street food called takoyaki, fried octopus balls. And I do have an episode planned on Osaka, so stay tuned. But anyway, Kyoto was one of the few cities left relatively undamaged by American bombing during World War II. And although Japanese people across the nation shared in the traumatic aftermath of the war, the lack of food, residual fear of planes dropping bombs, Kids growing up in Kyoto were spared some of the worst physical reminders. Bombed out buildings, demolished houses, dead neighbors. Before the bullet train opened in 1964, just in time for the Tokyo Olympics, traveling from regional cities like Osaka and Kyoto up to Tokyo was a big deal. It was expensive, it took a long time, and it was something that regular people didn't do all that often. And that meant that the tiger's world growing up was small and provincial, and it must have felt stifling. But one thing that pushed at the boundaries of this tiny little world was music. Through the cultural influence of the Americans, who still had and still have actually, troops posted to Japan, um, came covers of Western songs by teen stars like Nakao Mie and Moriyama Kayoko. And these songs were called cover pops. And for the young tigers, I can only imagine that listening to cover pops must have been like getting a glimpse of the world beyond the banks of the Kamo River. To give you a taste of what these sounded like, here is Moriyama Kayoko with her 1960 cover of the Italian hit Tintarella di Luna. Tintarella di Luna Tin, 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 tin,
meet young Kishibe Osami. He's a tall, lanky kid with a long face and an easy grin. And his middle school classmate and friend, Hitomi Minoru, who's much shorter than Kishibe, and cute as a button with an angelic face covering up a wickedly sharp mind. The two middle school friends would listen to cover pops after school on the Kishibe family's coveted portable record player. But after middle school graduation, Kishibe went to an Osaka vocational school and Hitomi began working, attending high school part-time in the evening. And the two friends just fell out of touch. Until one day, they happened to run into each other by chance in the trendy, nightlife-filled Shijo area in downtown Kyoto, where they'd both begun frequenting the dance clubs that had sprung up in the wake of the 1962 twist boom. <laughs> Specifically, they both frequented the super popular Denon, and soon the two old school friends were joined by a third like-minded comrade, a high school boy named Morimoto Taro, who was a bright, thoughtful kid. He's tall, gentle, and the kind of handsome that makes you do a double take on the street. Morimoto was trying to do his best at school, but he was not really keen on the way his parents were pushing him towards a career in banking. And and he soon fell in with the rebellious Kishibe and Hitomi. And then in 1963, the three cool cats were joined by a fourth, two years younger than them, Takahashi Katsumi, who'd begun attending the same evening school as Hitomi. And the way Hitomi tells it, he saw Takahashi in the cafeteria wearing a beret and carrying his sketchbook and just looking like he had the soul of an artist and knew immediately they were going to be friends. Takahashi and his mom, who was a high school teacher, had just moved to Kyoto from Osaka. And maybe it was the influence of his mother, who was involved in left-wing politics, or just from, you know, being from the big city. But I think to the provincial kids from Kyoto, Takahashi must have seemed like he knew a lot about the outside world. And so Hitomi swept Takahashi right into their little group and the four became fast friends. Morimoto and Kishibe both very tall for the time, Kishibe cracking six feet, which is still very tall for Japan. And with the handsome Hitomi and artistic Takahashi in tow, the four drew attention on the dance floor at Denen, doing the monkey, the twist. And how charismatic were these kids? Well, a picture of the friends, mid-boogie, won the top prize in an amateur photography contest hosted by the local newspaper. And so the music that they were dancing to at these clubs like Denon hit right at what was called the Aleki Boom, which crested over into mainstream teen culture in 1965. Cover Pops was completely replaced on teen stereos with blazing hot electric guitar music from western bands like The Ventures and The Astronauts, as well as homegrown Japanese bands like Teruuchi Takashi and the Blue Jeans. <laughs> Aleki Boom music featured virtuoso lead guitar over a steady drum beat, anchored by chika 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 chika, rhythm guitar, and bass. 
perfect for dancing your cares in Andrea Ray. And the Alecky boom was a boom. saw a short-lived Battle of the Band-style TV show called Kachinuki Areki Gassen, where instrumental bands squared off in front of a live studio audience, and a mega-hit movie starring teen idol-slash-musician Kayama Yuzo, the theme song to which, sung by Kayama himself, became the biggest-selling record in Japan ever to that point. According to the Tiger's biography, in 1962, there were about 50,000 electric guitars in Japan, but by 1965, there were more than 10 times as many, two of which were owned by, yes, Morimoto and Takahashi, who had both bought a guitar and both started to teach themselves how to play. In January of 1965, the Ventures and the Astronauts landed in Japan for a nationwide tour. And this was a big deal in capital letters, and you had better believe that the four swingingest teens in Kyoto were right there in line for tickets to the show in nearby Osaka, getting up at the crack of dawn to catch the first train into the city. And while standing around killing time in line, a stereotypically outspoken Osaka girl named Mori Masumi, who just so happened to be president of the local chapter of the Beatles fan club, started busting their balls. And Tachi, Osaka no kuyara, ventures mo ekito, chibuna de mo yattaro gurai no koto, kangaete hoshi wa. Y'all are guys, ain't ya? The ventures are okay, but it'd be cool if y'all thought about making a band by yourselves. Like, you know? It had been an idea they'd kicked around before, but Mori Matsumi's words gave them the kick in the butt they needed, and Kyoto's newest Aleki boom band, Sally and the Playboys, was born. Sally was Lanky Kishibe's nickname after the Little Richard song, Long Tall Sally. Morimoto and Takahashi would play guitar. Hitomi? Drums. And Kishibe? Sally was left with the bass. From what I have been able to find out, no recordings exist of Sally and the Playboys, but they would have been playing the same type of instrumental songs and probably at the same level of competence as the bands that went on Kachinuki Ereki Gassen. And for a taste of that amateur band sound, I did find somebody who had uploaded like a 15 minute chunk of audio recording of Kachiyoreki Gassen. So here is a clip of what Sally and the Playboys probably would have sounded like.
now, right here is a good time to pause and take a look at what will be the catalyst for turning amateur Aleki Boom Band, Sally and the Playboys, into the Tigers, Japan's very first idol group. And I'm talking about what's known among Japan's classic rock bands as the Ribotri, Liverpool Three, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, and the Dave Clark Five. Okay, yes, only the Beatles were actually from Liverpool, but you know, eh, the Liverpool Three is a thing. Um, <laughs> thanks to the Beatles, the Liverpool sound was a brand name in Japan in the early to mid 60s, and it meant high energy rock and roll with crisp drumming, sharp bass, and heavy emphasis on rhythm guitar and sing-along choruses. It was a style meant to be enjoyed live, preferably while dancing, with the rhythm section hitting evenly across all the beats in the measure, a distant ancestor to the modern four-on-the-floor beat. The Dave Clark Five's Catch Us If You Can from 1965 is a good illustration of what Japan considered you know, the quote-unquote Liverpool sound. Here they come again, mm-hmm. catch us if you can, mm-hmm. time to get a move on, mm-hmm. we were young with all of our life. snaps on the two and the four, intercut with strummed guitar on the ones in the beginning. And when the full rhythm section kicks in, you can still feel where those snaps will be pushing the song along. And then when that chorus hits, ah, boom! You are bopping around your living room, singing into a hairbrush at the top of your lungs. Here they come again, Just if you can Beatles-led British invasion hit later, and it hit differently in Japan than it did in the good old U.S. of A., following as it did in the wake of the dancehall Aleki Boom craze. The way the Tigers explained it in their 2013 reunion interviews, more than anything else, the idea of a band just kind of blew their minds. The Liverpool Three weren't just a lead vocalist and some guys or like the Aleki Boom Bands, just some guys. The vocals and music were on equal footing, united, and you paid attention when they were on stage. They didn't just stand and play in the background while you did the monkey. 
The young tigers liked the harmonies and the interesting chord progressions of the Beatles, but they loved the filthy, blazing hot stage energy of the Rolling Stones. And after a less than successful attempt at covering some songs from another British group, the Animals, with vocals, they made a decision. Neither Sally nor any of his playboys could play or sing well enough to sing and play at the same time. Sally and the playboys needed a dedicated vocalist. Enter one Sawada Kenji. While Sally and the Playboys were scraping at the edges of the amateur scene in Kyoto, Sawada Kenji, who in 1965 would have been just 17, the same age as Takahashi, was hustling as a gopher for local Aleki boom band Thunders. In exchange for running errands like fetching cigarettes and helping to haul equipment, the Thunders let young Sawada sing a few covers during their sets. When Sally and the Playboys mentioned they were thinking of looking for a vocalist, one of their many lady friends suggested they check out Sawada for reasons that would soon become obvious. Sally and the Playboys trooped down to Denon one night when the Thunders were performing, and they were blown away by Sawada's look and his stage presence. So, okay. Sally and the Playboys were all devotees of what was called the Ivy Look, an ultra-trendy, East Coast American preppy-inspired fashion pushed by Japanese fashion label Van. We are talking glossy hair, crisp button-downs, slim-fit high-water chinos, plaid blazers, little yachting caps. No joke, this was the uniform for many a stylish mid-60s teenage delinquent. But Sawada? So the way Takahashi remembers it, when they first saw him, he had a crew cut and was wearing a too big business suit, pointy shoes, and a skinny tie, and was singing a cover of Miki Katsuhiko's Ore no Namida wa Ore ga fuku. He was perfect. おるがて可愛そうにと慰められて恐れで気が済む俺じゃない半難が一人で散るように俺の涙は俺へが降る Sally and the Playboys asked Sawada to meet them at a nearby diner because they had a question for him. And so Sawada Kenji made a fateful decision. He would quit his position with the semi-pro Thunders to join forces with this brash new amateur band. Their first show together was in late December 1965. And as the new year dawned, 1966, Sawada quit high school, and Sally and the Playboys were reborn as the Funnies. There were three key events in 1966 for the teenaged Funnies. One was snagging a regular spot at Osaka Jazz Kisaten Namba Ichiban, which is a pun that will take too long to explain. But that gave them both much-needed income 
and a chance to really hone their act. The second event, entering and winning the local Kyoto Amateur Battle of the Bands with a blazing hot cover of the Rolling Stones' Satisfaction, a song suggested by Sally's younger brother Shiro, a rock enthusiast hoping to make a career as a music critic. And you know what? He had a good ear. sales after winning, the Funnies moved into a boarding house in Osaka and continued playing wherever they could, including, apparently, at an infamous gay bar run by flamboyant transsexual Carousel Mackie. And on the rare days they didn't have a gig, they would pop back home to Kyoto to hang out at Mrs. Takahashi's house and play mahjong, except for Salada who, despite his strong stage presence, was really kind of reserved. And so he would go with them, but rather than playing mahjong, he would just make the tea and sit and listen to the other four banter. And this right here is the era that the Tigers look back on most fondly, when they were all just working towards their dream. 
And I think it's important to note at this point that the Funnies did not write their own music. It's not something that occurred to them. But playing songs written by other people didn't have the same negative connotations that would develop here in the West, especially post-monkeys. So the Funnies may have, you know, only done cover songs, but they took those songs and they made them their own through performance. And certainly the fans didn't have a problem with it. Because you see, over in Osaka, the guys had reconnected with outspoken fangirl, yes, Mori Masumi, regional president of the Beatles fan club, who watched one of their live sets and promptly offered to start and run the Funnies fan club. And by June of 1966, she had gathered more than 300 members. And this, right here, is what sets the Funnies apart from the other bands of the era. The Funnies weren't the most musically gifted, or technically gifted, but the girls really liked them. And the Funnies liked their fans. And while there may have been backstage shenanigans, I mean, these are teen boys we're talking about, Officially, the group had a no-girlfriends policy, and their boarding house had a no-lady-guests policy. And they had what Mori Masumi later referred to as balance on stage. And she used the waseigo word, barensu, which is the same word used to describe the Beatles' stage presence. They weren't a star in a backing group. They were a band. A mix of complementary personalities. And as a group, they just fit together. They were real-life childhood friends, and that natural bond shone through. Fans were attracted to that just as much as they were to their music and to their looks. And it didn't hurt that the Funnies were young, a good five to ten years younger than the other bands on the circuit. And they were no ugly ones in the group. It's no wonder the fangirls love them. And speaking of the Beatles... The third key event for the Funnies, soon to be Tigers, in 1966, was the Beatles concert at the Budokan. Fan club president Mori snagged the group five tickets to the Beatles' first show on June 30, 1966. Sadly, Morimoto was unable to attend, and so his place was taken by Kishibe's younger brother Shiro. The five boys from Kansai, dressed in their sharp, Ivy-look-inspired tan band uniforms they'd worn for the Battle of the Bands, sat in the balcony level and just absorbed everything. The sound, the feel, the aura of the Beatles. And they came back to Osaka inspired. And just to lay everything on the table, I myself was a teenaged Beatles fanatic, although I came to the fandom some 30 plus years after the original teen fangirls, and their legacy remains as strong as ever. The Beatles set the mold for many of the things we've come to associate with idol groups. Take the traditional Teen Dream Magazine Q&As about favorite foods and glossy photo shoots, but add to that a strong group bond featuring hilarious in-group banter and opportunities for explosive merchandising. Because why buy just one member's commemorative serving tray when you could collect all four? Drawing on my memories as a Beatles fan, what I remember most about the Budokan shows was that they were some of the last that the Beatles played before stopping touring completely. 
At that time, live sound for concerts was still fairly rudimentary, and the Beatles had grown weary of trying to perform while fighting the noise of tens of thousands of shrieking fangirls. Drummer Ringo Starr later said that in those days he had to watch the front line's butts wiggle just to try and guess what the tempo was for the song, or even what song they were supposed to be playing. The boys felt like dancing monkeys. But these last shows at the Budokan, the Beatles' first in Japan, had been a breath of fresh air. The audience was engaged but polite, something that still holds true for Japanese audiences. And for the first time in years, the Beatles could hear themselves play. Still, 1966 more or less represents the end of what we could consider the Beatles' idol group era. Although they weren't aware of it at the time, or more likely ever, those Budokan shows represent a passing of the torch, from the group on stage to the one watching them in the crowd. After the Beatles hit Japan in a big way, that talent scouts from Tokyo went looking for groups that fit the Liverpool sound. Men from all sorts of talent agencies came sniffing around Namba Ichiban, with Sawara even offered at a chance at a solo contract two or three times. But he always turned them down. The funnies had an understanding. It would be all of them or nothing. Enter one Uchida Yuya. Like the Tigers, Uchida was originally from the greater Osaka area, but he had been born before the war, almost a decade older than our boys, but just as ambitious. In the 1950s, Uchida had run off to Tokyo to be famous. He worked as a gopher for various acts before snagging a spot with talent agency Watanabe Productions and making his debut at the late, great, Grand Western Carnival in 1959. He kicked around with guys like Monsieur Kamayatsu, who we will 
certainly see again later, and Tero Uchi Takeshi, who we met earlier. But Uchida was no supporting player. He craved the spotlight. And after releasing a handful of rockabilly-type singles as a solo act, while also doing spots on television and films as kind of a rock personality, by 1966, Uchida sensed a change in the wind, and he knew it. Bands were the new thing, solo guys were O-U-T, and he needed a band now. When Uchida wandered into Namba Ichiban one night in late summer 1966, while the Funnies were playing, he saw what those talent scouts hoping to snag lead singer Sawada Kenji had missed. Uchida saw a band, and he promised them an invite to Tokyo and a chance to audition with Watanabe Productions. And in October, the call came. By November, they would be on their way to Tokyo. Professional musicians represented by Watanabe Productions' talent agency. November 3rd, 1966 was the final fan meet as the Funnies. They joined with their fans for a last bittersweet lunch at the Botanical Gardens in Kyoto. And one fangirl later said her strongest memory of the day was the rare sight of Sally happily singing on the bus ride home. The Funnies left for Tokyo on the 9th, with a big crowd of family, friends, and fans there to see them off. And I was able to track down some grainy footage of the picnic and farewell posted to YouTube by a dedicated fan, which I'll link to in the show notes. And you can see the very young tigers goofing around with their fans and with each other. My favorite moment was seeing Hitomi in a bright red cardigan, posing for the camera as Takahashi comes up behind him to mess up his hair. And you can see for yourselves why the fangirls love them so much. The funnies moved into a small bunk bed filled dormitory with the strict but caring manager Nakai, who was himself also a brand new employee of Watanabe, and who would eventually become known as the Sixth Tiger. Manager Nakai made sure the boys cleaned up after themselves and that they diligently practiced. He made the transition to the big city of Tokyo as smooth as he could for the youngsters, and despite the very close quarters by all accounts, those early days in the dorm were cheerful ones. But our friend Uchida had not forgotten the funnies, and soon after they arrived, he swooped in and brought them to the it spot an Italian restaurant called simply Chianti. 
and it's actually still open to this day, the oldest Italian restaurant in Tokyo. For the young funnies coming from Osaka, the authentic European food would have been like nothing they'd tasted before. So Japan has this faux Italian pasta dish called Napoletan that's basically just plain noodles mixed with ketchup and ham. And imagine going from that to eating pasta sauce made with fresh tomatoes and basil. Ugh, I am turning into the chef kissing fingers emoji just thinking about it. But even more important than the food was the atmosphere, because Chianti was more than just a restaurant. It was the epicenter of avant-garde Japanese culture. It was opened in 1960 by Kawazoe Hiroshi, who had just returned to Japan from Paris with his teen son and his gorgeous 30-something fashion designer second wife Kajiko in tow. And by all accounts, Madame Kajiko was a memorable hostess and was known around the restaurant by her affectionate nickname Tenten. Chianti was a salon for all the most interesting, fashionable, and artistic people, not just in Tokyo, not just in Japan, but all around the world. Anyone who was someone made sure to stop by at Chianti from globally renowned author Mishima Yukio to French fashion designer Pierre Cardin, and of course the man who knew everybody who was anybody, our friend Uchida, was a frequent guest. So, the glamorous Tantan also ran a fashion boutique called Baby Doll in the same building as Chianti, and she specialized in what was then called the Conchi look, short for continental, as in European darling. As this was 1966-1967 we're talking about, that meant the grooviest in bell-bottom trousers, fringed vests over short mini dresses, beaded necklaces and turtlenecks for the gents, and the swinginest of Carnaby Street-inspired prints. And all of this was paired with long flowing locks on both women and men. And when Tantan saw the funnies, still dressed in their towny ivy look duds, she is said to have called them diamonds in the rough. Takahashi, the artistic soul of the group, fell in love with the Chianti scene immediately. Uchida had a possibly apocryphal story that goes something like this. He told the funnies on their first visit that they should come back to Chianti whenever. It would be on him. And, well, Takahashi apparently took him at his literal word and began frequenting the restaurant for dinner every night until Tantan called up Uchida and asked him when exactly he would be paying the bill. Not all the funnies were as eager as Takahashi to adapt to this new world, but one by one the funnies let themselves be made over in the fashionable kanji style, and Baby Doll would become their go-to boutique for stage costuming and just for their regular clothes. So after they passed the audition with record label Polydor, the funnies made their first television appearance in late November 1966 on a program produced by the Watanabe agency called The Hit Parade, 
the only link to the original performance I was able to locate was on a streaming website that has since been wiped from the face of the internet. But the person who uploaded it said on their blog that the footage had been recorded by a friend of Kishibe's father on a Sony Open Reel video recorder, and that they had performed a cover of Paul Revere and the Raiders' hit, Kicks. One of the people the five extremely nervous kids from the sticks met that day was the Hit Parade's producer-slash-freelance songwriter, a man named Sugimoto Koichi, who we will definitely be hearing from again. The way the story goes, about 30 seconds before the funnies were supposed to go on, Sugimoto said to them, Uh, what's your name? The funnies? That doesn't have any punch. You guys are from Kansai, right? You should be the Tigers. Referring to the Hanshin Tigers, the baseball team you support if you're from the Osaka area. And that was it. The Funnies, the high-octane Osaka bar band, were now the Tigers. But who would the Tigers become? While waiting for their major label debut to be finalized, the newly christened Tigers were gang-pressed into performing as Uchida's backing band on the jazz Kisaten circuit in Tokyo. These club names are legendary. Nishigeki Western Carnival, which started out as a rockabilly club, hence the name. Shinjuku ACB, which I believe is actually still a working venue. Ikibukuro Drum. And these jazz Kisaten sat about 200 to 500 people, and the way that they worked was that there was two shifts. There would be an afternoon shift and an evening shift, and each band would play um, three to four sets per shift. So when the funnies started at Namba Ichiban, they were on the weekday afternoon shift and had worked their way up to weekend evenings. So the Tokyo clubs cost about 300 yen to get in, and to put that in perspective, a brand new 45 vinyl single cost about 370 yen. So cost of admission would have been, you know, within the reach of the average high school girl's pocket money. Now in Tokyo, the young tigers would have been mingling on the scene with much more experienced musicians like the Spiders, who had not only played with everyone from the Ventures to the Beach Boys on their Japanese tours, but had also toured internationally themselves. And in December 1966, they had just released their eighth single mega hit song Nanto Nahu. Yeah. 
The spiders are a fascinating group, and because their career will intersect with the tigers later on, it's worth taking a detour here just to give a quick introduction. The spiders were, on average, a good decade or so older than the tigers. Their leader, drummer Tanebe Shoichi, started playing jazz drums in his teens around the military camps in Tokyo, the American military camps in Tokyo, which is where he's from. And he started the Spiders in 1961, adding singer Sakai Masaki in 1962, Chianti regular and all-around eccentric Monsieur Kamiyatsu on rhythm guitar, and very talented lead guitarist Inoue Takayuki. Because the Spiders' roots were in jazz and instrumental music, they had a mastery of technique that the Tigers would never develop. And here they are with 1965 single, Furi Furi. Listen to the complex interplay of the rhythm section. The drums and the bass weave back and forth, and that wailing lead guitar, and the breakdown where the drums cut out, and it's just a straight beat for a couple measures, ugh, all of this on a throwaway go-go dance track. Go-go spiders! had range. Here's another cut. Listen to the unusual vocal harmonies and chord progressions on 1966 No No Boy, music by leader Tanabe, and supremely naughty No Means Yes lyrics by Monsieur Kamayatsu. No 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 boy. No 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 boy. 
But here's the thing. The spiders were incredibly talented. They had amazing songs and had cute as a button lead singer Sakai. And he was cute. But the rest of the guys are in their late 20s and they were, mm, they were musicians. The kind that write no means yes lyrics, if you get my drift. Look, I'll put it this way. In the 2013 interviews I mentioned at the top of the episode, Takahashi says that he loathed the super masculine rock scene that they were thrust into in late 66 in Tokyo. And I kind of get the sense that he wasn't the only one. I love the spiders. I do. They're fantastic. And so are a lot of the other group sounds bands, which is what the genre would be called, who pop up around this time in the same mold. But the Tigers were special. They were more than a band. They were an idol group. And they had the key ingredient bands like the Spiders were missing. They were making music for and forming a deep connection with their female fans. Maybe it was the early influence of strong-willed Morimasumi, beloved president of the Osaka chapter of the Beatles fan club. Or, you know, maybe just the personalities of the boys themselves. Takahashi, raised by his independent mother. Morimoto, who looked up to his cool, Elvis-loving big sister. But the Tigers were not cut from the same cloth as your typical bro-y garage bands that they shared bills with. From the beginning, they'd always had a special bond with their female fans. But the funnies, the Tigers, were still a garage band. And they were a garage band who rocked hard. So imagine their shock and disgust when Watanabe Productions handed them a novelty song as their debut single. Like, who do you think we are? And to understand why this garage rock band of cute guys was handed a dopey novelty song, you have to understand that if you are in Japanese show business, even today, if you are in Japanese show business, being from Osaka has certain comedic connotations. And yeah, I mean, I'll get into this in a later episode, but for now, just understand that seeing a band from Osaka with a very Osaka name like Tigers, I can only assume that the record company higher-ups were like, oh, all right, Uh, Osaka band, Osaka novelty song, done, and handed them a comedic song from Nakamura Taiji, who is, yeah, from Osaka. The song was called... <laughs> Yogiri no Gaikotsu Kanbanwa, which translates to like, good evening, Mr. Skeleton in the Night Fog. <laughs> yeah. And it was later recorded and released as the second single by Blink and You'll Miss Them band, The Capes. And it's now next to impossible to find. And I tried. But the cover features the band dressed in ridiculous, brightly colored skeleton suits while holding their instruments, so I'm sure it's, you know, uh, sought after by 60s kitsch collectors. Anyways, manager Nakai took the song back to Watanabe Pro and begged them to reconsider. Thankfully, they agreed. The Tigers were not going to be a novelty act, but what kind of act would they be? Remember our friend Sugimoto Koichi from the TV station? Well, it turns out that he was also an old jazz hand and regular at Chianti, as was Mrs. Watanabe Misa, as in Watanabe of Watanabe Productions, as in the Tiger's talent agency. 
And Watanabe Misa was not only President Watanabe's wife, but also his business partner. And she was a sharp judge of talent in her own right. And much like her friend Tantan, she was fascinated by the country style and wanted to create a new style of popular song to fit the exotic European imagery. And the man to do it would be Sugimoto Koichi. And the lyrics were going to be handled by Hashimoto Jun, who was heavily influenced by his father, a scholar of fairy tales. The result? Boku no Mei. And that is where we'll end. Boku ga mari to atta no wa samishii, samishii, ame no asa fransu. Ningyōだいていた Bokuni Hitoko to Iena could